Welcome to Folklore on the Rocks. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Folklore on the Rocks. I'm Logan. I'm Lindsay. And welcome to, uh, where are we at? We are in our fo- oh, modern folklore, aren't we? Yes, that was, this week. Yep. Yeah, that, oh, boy, I'm, I'm really excited to share this one. It's been really cool to read some of these submissions, and, and I, I love the idea that folklore can still be created. It's something that the more we learn about other cultures, we get inspired. And it's, I always think of it like the, the tree in The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> uh, you know, what are you, you going to find in there? Only what you take with you. And it's the same thing. You know, you walk through the woods or, you know, down a dark uh, street at night and you hear a noise. You, hear, you feel a feeling. What is it? Well, if you know about vampires and banshees and Nessie and and the Ogopogo, then you don't know what it's going to be. It can be something cool and and exotic. We are creatures that we take inspiration from these stories. Absolutely. I think that folklore kind of, kind of like we talked about the last couple of weeks, folklore takes root in something that happens that's unexplained and we talk about it, we embellish it, we tell other people, and it kind of snowballs from there, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of snowballing aspect of it is what creates the folktales that we have today. And that that same exact thing happened, you know, hundreds of years ago. People are the same way back then as they are today. Oh, yeah, in a lot of ways. Right? Um, We always want to tell somebody about what happened to us. We always want to maybe make it a little seem a little bit more than it was yeah and from there that's how you make it a good story or our imaginations yeah filled in in the gaps and from there it plays the telephone game and gets changed and morphed over time and becomes these creatures or these stories that we know very well today yeah and it's kind of cool as hosts to be part of Mm -hmm. the the retransmission of these stories and and through us new new listeners are gonna be exposed to them maybe they'll tell them to somebody else oh we hope so please if you get find yourself uh around a campfire anytime soon i know we're into october we're getting out of campfire season but uh, we're we're actually out of october now (laughs) oh really oh But uh, hey, Halloween is in our hearts all year. Absolutely, <laughs> and and you can tell a you can tell a scary story anytime. You know, if mm-hmm. it, Yule is coming up, that's a great time for stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, it, but it's just it's fun to to be part of this process to take a story and and help spread it around. In light of that, what we want to do is get modern folklore stories, and by that, what we mean is no sleeps. Creepy pastas, let's not meets. Yeah. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with these, these are subreddits where people, or at least No Sleep is a subreddit where people go and they tell a story, and whether it's fictional or not, that doesn't matter in the group. Basically, everything that's posted there needs to be treated as if it happened, even if it was fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the replies will be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened to you. Or let's talk about this specific creature that you mentioned in your story or that kind of thing. And I think that makes it really, really immersive and a very immersive experience, Yeah, which to, I love. To come from a place of, to start with, we trust you. Instead of we... Period. Yeah, we, yeah because yeah, you're always going to... Yeah, you're going to be met with... 
skepticism in any other forum. Mm -hmm. And so to have a place where these stories can grow and have a home, I think is really, really interesting. Yeah. And we, uh, a few people send us in some stories to have us narrate them and they're fantastic stories. We've really enjoyed them. Uh, so we're going to be reading a few stories for you today and talking about them a little bit. Uh, and then you can see what you think. I mean, is this a tale that you're going to take and yeah, move I, on and tell your kids and tell have their kids tell their kids? You sure. Know? Also, we did want to mention, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, we are now doing a cocktail of the week. Oh, yeah. Yes, it's divine. Um, we have a friend, we're calling him Anubis, who is kind of our guru when it comes to cocktail creation and, and he's helping us out with these this dude knows his stuff oh yes he does <laughs> so much yeah. he's fantastic so today's or this week's cocktail is called new moon Ooh. Oh, a little oh, spooky. yeah uh, which which i love I, I think that's really fun because you know the darkest a night can be is the night of a new moon yeah you know for this, we have gin, which I know is a very polarizing liquor. It's it's not for everyone. You, I've never met someone who is meh about gin. They mm. either love it or they absolutely despise it. For me, gin is that friend I don't introduce to my other friends. <laughs> it's a, it's great uh, on its own. And if I start with gin, I'm going to stick with gin. But uh, it, it doesn't play well with others, for me, anyway. That's understandable. Yeah. Uh, gin and tonics are, are my favorite drink by far. Nothing I'm, I'm a hardcore gin bit. fan. Yeah. So uh, the gin that we used today that we are currently drinking is Hendrix, which is one of my favorites. It's kind of one of the more expensive ones, but I think that it it tastes... Oh, it's got a really, really nice. Best. Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoy that. Um, I, I also really like Bombay Sapphire. Oh, who doesn't? And yeah. New Amsterdam. They are all very good gins. Mm -hmm. um, we also have Triple Sec. And then we have some uh, some limeade and some tonic water Yeah, in there. I mean, it does have a citrus component to it. Definitely. definitely. Uh, with, with the lime and the orange. Yeah. But basically, you just mix all of the ingredients over ice so on the rocks yep <laughs> um and it's humbler and you just garnish with a lime wedge and it is lovely it, i mean it, it tastes like a i don't know it reminds me of someplace that, alive a like a like an orange grove or something like that not just the fruit but the plant or yeah, yeah oh absolutely mm -hmm. it has that element to it for sure mm -hmm. i've i've really enjoyed it mine's mine's almost gone so <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna want to refresh mine in a little yeah, bit yeah definitely um, so that's our cocktail of the week. Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll post the recipe on our show notes. We will post it, I'm sure on social media as well. You can create the drink if you want and give us a listen while you're drinking it even better. Yes, please. Get in the same frame of mind as we are. <laughs> yeah. Come join the party. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's just launch into our stories sounds good yeah, so our first story is by hannah st john her reddit handle is you slash lemon and her story is called creosote creosote oh good one logan is going to tell it to us all right here goes have you ever smelled rain in the southwest 
It's a unique fragrance, unlike rain in less arid places. It's smoky, herbaceous, and vaguely chemical, but pleasant all the same. The scent comes from the creosote bush, a long-lived species with a curious nature. It's so efficient at taking in water that each plant has a ring of dead earth surrounding it, since no other plants can compete with it for resources. The older plants can withstand droughts very well, having adapted to the harshness of the desert. You can see them spaced out neatly everywhere as you look in the Mojave. They serve as shelter for small creatures who feed on their fallen leaves and tunnel around in their deep roots. The oldest ring of creosotes have been around for 11,700 years. When my college was first getting started, the owners bought several acres of untouched land right up against the mountains southeast of my hometown. The school is still young, and when I went there, we only had two buildings with the mountain on one side and the desert on the other. Sometimes you'd see desert life, which was a treat for the city kids, who never knew something wild could live out there on its own. I got used to seeing the families of quail crossing the single road in orderly lines, which bore a striking resemblance to the trail of students trudging through the snow from one building to the other. During my evening and night classes, I'd even see a flash of something out there in the bushes. I used to think it was a jackrabbit, but now I know better. The last semester of my senior year was hell. I was only taking three classes, but they were the hardest and most time-intensive, and I kicked myself for putting them off for so long. One of them was biology, which I hadn't been able to fit into my schedule during any prior semester. It was a three-hour-long night class, held in the Liberal Arts and Sciences Building, or LAS, which was closest to the mountain. It ended about 10 p.m., although the professor often ran out of material early and let us leave around 9.30. He suggested we use a buddy system when walking back out to our cars, but since some of us had arrived on campus hours earlier and parked farther away, this didn't always happen. This was one such night for me. We only had a couple of real parking passes for 2,500 students, so if you didn't get there early in the day, you had to park in the middle of the desert. Class ran unusually late that night, and my car was the only one left that far out. As I began my solitary walk through the dirt, I began to feel uneasy. This wasn't abnormal. I have anxiety about walking alone at night, and there are rumors about colonies of people taking shelter in the nearby wash. Some students claim to have found evidence of them, like the remains of scattered fires and dirty clothing. One guy even said he saw one down there once. A man, in a blue t-shirt and jeans, though no one really believed him. The desert is just as unforgiving to humans at night as it is during the day, and we were far enough away from civilization that walking all the way out there from the city would be madness. So I knew I probably wouldn't run into someone out there, but the thought was still enough to make me reach for my keys and carefully arrange them between my knuckles. I breathed deeply. The rain smell of the creosotes was comforting and familiar, and I relaxed a little. It grew stronger the closer I got to the mountain. I saw the silhouette of a man in the distance, but it was gone when I got closer. I tightened my grip on my keys anyway. As I drew closer to my car, I realized something strange. Creosotes don't grow on that side of the campus. After that, I made a point of parking right near the doors of the building. I began to feel a deep, irrational fear that something was waiting out there in the dirt. I knew it was silly, but such fears don't need to be rational to take hold. Over the next few weeks, however, nothing happened. No weird silhouettes and no weird smells. I brushed off my paranoia and chalked it up to midterm-induced stress. In the last month of the semester, the campus was packed with people cramming in the library all day and meeting for study groups. When I arrived for my last two classes, both parking lots were full. 
I decided to take a chance on the desert again and planned to ask someone to walk out with me after class. As I walked into the building, I caught the smell of creosotes just outside the door. I was relieved to see several of them growing close by, but I wondered why I didn't notice the scent before. I hoped my class would take my mind off things, and it did. Calculus was always my worst subject, and I struggled through the period like I usually did. I glanced over to the large window, hoping for divine inspiration. And there it was. A figure, just close enough to make out, with its back to the mountain. It wore a ragged blue shirt and dirty jeans. Its posture was bizarre, though at first glance it looked human. It was broken and twisted. Its shoulders hunched forward, and it bent sideways at the waist. Its arms hung bonelessly from the sleeves, and as I stared, it tilted its head back and opened its mouth. I could hear its lunatic cackling in my head, and the smell of creosotes filled my senses. Mumbling some excuse, I grabbed my things and ran from the room. The college library was in the same building, so I headed straight there. Being a desert school, it had an impressive amount of information on the Southwest folklore and history. I tore through the books, searching for anything that could tell me what I kept seeing. But there was nothing. No myths of skinwalkers or shapeshifters in this desert. No other cryptids either. No stories at all. I turned my attention to the creosote bush and learned the information you read above. I think this thing is like that bush. It is the only creature of its kind in its territory. It uses up the resources around it so nothing else can. It can survive without sustenance for a long, long time. It is old. So old we've forgotten it exists. And it smells like home. Like the desert when it rains. Although I never wanted to set foot in that building again, I finished out the semester and did pretty well on my finals, all things considered. I smelled that rain smell a couple more times before I left the school for good, but I did my best to ignore it knowing I'd never have to go back again after graduation. Last month, classes started up again for the fall semester, and the school hit a new record for enrolled students. Two days ago, one of my old classmates shared a post on Facebook about a local girl that went missing. It was said she was last seen walking to her car after a night class in the LAS building. But my old friend told me privately that his younger sister thought she saw the missing girl standing out in front of the mountain. He dismissed it since no one would be dumb enough to wander out there in the first place. But I shivered. That thing has starved for hundreds of years. And now, there's a steady food supply right in the middle of its hunting ground. All right. Well, um, the, the one thing I really want to start with on this one. Oh, this was such a cool story. Fantastic. Yeah. Her, her uh, the language that she uses in this is just so descriptive and yeah. very evocative. You feel like you are in the desert with her smelling yeah. these crazy it, it, it does feel like this is someone who really loves that part of the world. Mm-hmm. And as someone, I mean, we, we were from Utah and we live in kind of a desert world. We've seen, you know, creosotes. We've seen those, those long stretches of nothing just growing up near the, near the desert kind of biome. It does make it feel, uh, listening to stories like this one, like you're right back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, We've all spent, or at least <laughs> Logan and I have, <laughs> spent time 
camping or being around walking around desert it's one of the cool things Ar- to do arid, out here in utah yeah, arid areas um it's mostly the southern part of our state mm-hmm. but it's a different world really and it it has this vibe to it yeah and i think that she captured that extremely well mm-hmm. it's this barren nothingness it's a hard hard wilderness and 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 it's, it's but a, there's life yes it, it's a it's a life that is uh you know hard one very, very. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I feel builds into the creosote as, as, a, as almost as a character in this story. Uh-huh. It's a bush that has developed a way of life that, well, it, it's almost predatory. And to expand on that and to explore it as perhaps something to maybe be afraid of mm-hmm. is kind of a fun thing. Oh, absolutely. Especially at the beginning of the story when she kind of talks about the creosote being pleasant it's a pleasant smell smoking herbaceous and it smells like home it's something that Mm -hmm. um, and then then it becomes sinister mm -hmm. at the end of the story because it it relates to this creature yeah i mean for me one of the funny things and maybe it's just that we're sitting here drinking gin for me coming from (laughs) the utah mountains and then the utah deserts we get a lot more juniper than we do uh creosote but gin has that kind of same feel to it, especially when it rains and everything starts to open up and you start to really smell and feel the world is alive around you. Uh, that's something very special about the desert. Definitely. And and for those of you who don't know, uh, juniper is one of the main, main floral yeah. elements of gin. Yeah. It, so what do you think of this, uh, of this monster, of this creature? Well, I think that he is creepy as fuck. Yeah. For one, you have the shock of seeing something that you didn't expect to be there. Yeah. That's terrifying in and of itself. It could be the most innocuous thing ever and still scare you, right? Oh, oh absolutely. But looking over and seeing this ravenous humanoid... Yeah, this this twisted... Wrongly form. angled yeah. thing that screams wrong in every sentence. It's far beyond i think terror mm-hmm. right like <laughs> it's um I, I can't imagine how scary that would be right and the trauma that you would have from that just mentally like that would be burned in your brain oh yeah forever yeah and the one thing i keep thinking also when we when we started talking about uh these modern folk folklore stories we talked about uh, how repetition changes a story and the story gets retold and it grows and it changes. So say we were to retell this story, uh, what possible embellishments would we make, if any? It depends on what route we're going. Mm-hmm. I think if we're going for a movie or a television show, okay, so we got to add more, more dramatic elements, more moments like when she looked out the window. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, oh, in a, in a movie, I love, I would love some kind of, exploration into what this creature is right because the first like this would be the beginning right mm -hmm. of the movie you would need to build up the tension and then you know that this thing is out there you see it for the first time what happens next like what happens after so maybe it would be a continuation of the story of the girl that goes missing at the end yeah yeah right i think that would be that would make the most sense for Mm -hmm. it to continue building really a great story this idea of you know this 
this predatory carnivorous I, I i think of it as a plant monster um for me when when i think of the 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 humanoid form i think of it like it's mimicking a person it's a i think of it kind of like a like very much like a scarecrow it's wearing the the clothes that uh, they say they, they they saw the the person sleeping in the ditch wearing interesting i was i was feeling more of i want to say like zombie skinwalker okay okay so you just from the description mhm just the the angles and the arms hanging loosely and kind of bent in a weird way i mean i think it would be really hard to really pin it unless you were the one that saw yeah yeah i was but very humanoid mm -hmm. which is the most unnerving part about it i think yeah i i i keep on getting reminded of of something like a like a snapping turtle's tongue it's (laughs) it's a soft and wriggling thing that it's supposed to look like something totally harmless and innocuous just out there in the water and it wants the fish to come and bite it and as soon as the fish comes close enough to eat it the rest of the snapping turtle springs into motion and has a dinner. Uh, <laughs> um, and I just think of, of things like, well, a lot of uh, desert plants are all connected over long periods and spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a plant like this that is, that is so old and, and of a size that humans are the, its chosen prey, I kind of like that that uh, ambush predator mentality it's mm-hmm. uh, it's trying to find something to to call someone out into the desert and and the act of putting on clothes mm-hmm. to 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 hide its true form or huh? do you think it was human also a possibility right like that those were the clothes that that human had on and maybe he was bitten or maybe he became a skinwalker or maybe mm-hmm. yeah there's I don't, maybe he saw humans and mimicked them mm-hmm. you know there's there's a lot of different aspects there's a story behind those clothes yeah for sure and uh, that's something that well it's in it's in the the eye of the beholder or i guess the storyteller in this case uh, to figure out what that answer is mm-hmm. so those would all be fun things to explore so i think that the aspect of him or it, I don't know. I guess we don't know. Yeah, it is, it is 2018. <laughs> well, but somebody earlier in the story seen this figure with the blue shirt and the ragged jeans. Yeah. And she sees that exact same thing. And so you would immediately know what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. At the same time, that is a little bit of a, I, I tell you, hey, hey, Lindsay, there's a, there's an orange and purple monster that lives in the bushes over there watch out and then i see a purple and orange monster. yeah yeah so the power of suggestion is very strong Mm -hmm. then where's the line of this is what i saw this is what i saw versus this is what i was predisposed to see right Mm -hmm. because there's there's the echo of it could just be a clue to what you're seeing yeah or it could be that's why you're seeing that Mm -hmm. right I mean, we've we've been through tough semesters. Yeah, we know what rough classes can do to you. Uh, but at the same time, you know that doesn't necessarily discount anything of 
what's true and what's not. Yeah, uh, that's one thing that was very true to my college experience. Uh, the rest of the world doesn't care what your class schedule is. <laughs> very true. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for sending that in. That was a really fun story. Uh, should we move on to the next one? First, we actually have a promo oh, cool. for another podcast. Um, they're called Stories of Your and Yours. He's a great storyteller. He takes old tales like Poe or mm-hmm. Lovecraft. Or, or Chaucer or Ra- Bradbury. Yeah. Okay. You know, these wonderful, creepy, beautiful tales. And he narrates them. He does Foley with them. So you have sound effects. He's fantastic. Cool. And uh, we we think that you would really, really enjoy his show. So we are going to play his promo here. Do you love a good story? If you do, check out Stories of Your and Yours. I'm Sean Ennis, and each week on Stories of Your and Yours, I narrate a classic short story, adding music and sound effects to bring those stories new life. Poe, Vonnegut, Kipling, Twain, these are just a few of the authors that we've featured so far. And in addition to classic short stories, we feature original stories from aspiring authors. So if you do love a good story, give Stories of Your, that's Y-O-R-E, and yours, that's Y-O-U-R-S, a listen today. And visit the show at S-Y-Y Podcast on Facebook and Instagram to say hi and let me know what you think. So, yeah, that's Stories of Your Nor. So I hope you guys check them out. Yeah, might be right up your alley. So our next story is called have you ever heard of the bennington triangle mm, the bennington and it's triangle. by laura donnellan yeah and it's a really good story it, actually this one i this one is a lot of fun yeah so logan is going to go ahead and narrate that for us now have you ever heard of the bennington triangle it's not that well known outside of those who live in it i'm one of the unlucky folks who fall into the latter category well sort of I go to college there. It's a region in southwestern Vermont, centered around Glastonbury Mountain and including most of Bennington County. I go to Bennington College, most notable for being mentioned in a one-off line spoken by Alan Alda on 30 Rock. Another boast we can make is one of the major disappearances in this area was Paula Weldon, a sophomore from my school. There were five major disappearances, which happened between 1945 and 1950. I'm of the opinion that they started long before that, and still haven't ended. It's not very surprising that a heavily wooded mountainous area would have higher than average rates of disappearances. Sometimes people walk into the woods and they just... don't come back. That's one of the reasons I'm scared of forests. I've heard it referred to as the Silver Dread and Hylophobia, but I personally think of it as simple caution. There are things that want to kill you, and a disproportionate amount of those things live in forests. Avoiding forests is a good way to stay alive, but sometimes you don't have a choice. The first time I heard about the Bennington Triangle, I laughed. First of all, the Bermuda Triangle is a myth, plain and simple, and there was no doubt in my mind that this was too. Second, five disappearances is just a coincidence, not a pattern, and certainly not an indication of paranormal activity. But then I heard about the other disappearances. As it turns out, People had been vanishing in this area since before European settlers came. The Abenaki, 
the original inhabitants of the Bennington Triangle, believed, and some still believe, that Glastonbury Mountain is home to cursed stones which swallow people whole. To my knowledge, this isn't far from the truth. My roommate my freshman year was a nice girl. Her name was Caroline, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a tiny crush on her at first. She was into all the same idle games as me, and she didn't seem to mind the fact that my sleep schedule was more befitting of an intoxicated owl than a successful college student. At that point in my life, I'd never had sex, certainly not with another girl, let alone been in love, so any passing acquaintanceship was closely examined as a potential partner. In the end, it didn't play out that way. We weren't quite friends, but certainly weren't anything more either. We lived in the same space and managed the best we could. This year, my second, I managed to score a single. I also acquired several romantic and sexual partners in the year or so since I had that small crush on Caroline. I highly doubt that, put in the same situation, I would be interested in her again. But she was nice to me. And I think that lingering almost crush is part of why I cared so much when she vanished. Why I dedicated myself to finding her. Why I climbed Glastonbury Mountain on my own. The day she disappeared was like any other. It was colder than you'd expect for early autumn. But that's how life is in Vermont, high in the mountains. Autumn comes fast and hits like a semi-truck when it does. One day, the leaves are green and bright. Within a week, they're brown and rotting on the ground. This day was somewhere in that in-between week, when the leaves had just started to turn red and gold, and the temperatures haven't quite gotten low enough that going outside invites frostbite. According to her friends, Caroline went out for a hike, alone, wearing her red windbreaker. Now, those of you who know the Bennington Triangle will notice that she made two major errors here. First, she went hiking without a companion. That is a clear violation of basic forest safety. Second, she wore a red jacket. The significance of the jacket's color would be lost on the untrained eye, but if you know your stuff, you'd know that this mistake may have cost her her life. At least two of the five major disappearances were last seen wearing red outer clothing, and some people believed others were as well, in addition to more minor disappearances with the same color scheme. Now, of course, as I said earlier, a coincidence does not make a pattern, but you'd think that red jackets would at least make it easier to find their bodies, no? When word spread around campus that Caroline was missing, I naturally and enthusiastically joined in the search. We walked arm in arm through the woods immediately surrounding the college, but they're small and were searched completely before long. Caroline was nowhere to be found. At this point, the college administration was gently advised to step aside and let the proper authorities take over. While our show of student solidarity was heartwarming and worth a shot, its value had been spent. With hope rapidly dwindling and paranoia setting in, rumors spread like wildfire. This is when I started looking into the Bennington Triangle in earnest. I'd heard the term, of course, and heard a vague description of a few disappearances. When it affected me personally is when I started to wonder if there really was something strange going on. Some people on campus were saying that Caroline had been eaten by the stones on Glastonbury Mountain, that we'd never have a chance to find her so I had to dive deeper. Before you make any assumptions, I'm in a very happy relationship. I've always been interested in the paranormal, and Caroline was a part of my life, even if she was a relatively minor one. I wanted to do right by her and see if I could solve the mystery of the Bennington Triangle in the process. I quickly learned that there was a reason no one had done it yet. Well, there were several. One is that most people are like me, skeptics. If I didn't believe it at first, why would I expect other people to? 
Another reason is that, well, woods are big and empty. Looking for clues to a disappearance in the green mountains is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Except in the process, you could yourself get sucked into that haystack and become another needle for someone else to search for. And on and on like that. It's practically impossible to find a genuine line of information. Especially when most of the information you have is based on unreliable eyewitness accounts and hearsay. So I gave up on looking for clues, and I did something stupid. I bought a red jacket on Amazon, and I got ready to climb Glastonbury Mountain. I told my girlfriend, Lottie, that I was going out for a walk. It was true, technically. I just didn't want her to worry, or try to stop me. Because I knew that if she asked me not to go, I wouldn't. I felt like I had to go. I owed it to Caroline. It's funny, thinking back, I cared more about Lottie's potential feelings of concern than I did about my own safety, which was pretty much at the bottom of my list of worries. The leaves were almost completely gone by the time I set out to solve this mystery, once and for all. It was colder, too. The jacket I ordered was too thin, so I wore it over two other jackets I owned. There's a monument in the town of Bennington to the Battle of Bennington, a relatively minor battle in the American Revolution. For some reason, this was considered notable enough to build a 300-foot-tall obelisk. From the view on the mountain, it looks titanic, towering over every building for miles. The first time I saw it, I joked to my sister that it looked like something from an H.P. Lovecraft story about a cult taking over a rural town and building a monument to their eldritch overlord. I'm not sure if that's accurate, since I never actually read anything by Lovecraft, but that's the feeling I got. On that misty autumn morning, as I clambered up the mountain to find my friend, it looked as though the obelisk was even larger than usual. The fog rolling over the valley gave it the appearance of being a spire of a massive church towering above the clouds. Something important you need to know about Glastonbury Mountain is that it's home to numerous large stone cairns. I'm not talking about the trail markers you often see when hiking. I'm talking about something more akin to burial cairns found in Britain and Ireland. I'll call them the British Isles once I'm in the cold, hard ground. Though, on a slightly smaller scale. These structures are far too old and large to have been built by hikers, and too high up to be the work of citizens of the now unincorporated Glastonbury Township. Perhaps strangest of all, the Abenaki have vehemently denied being responsible for their construction, and imply that the Cairns have been there as long as their oral history stretches. Many Bennington Triangle experts believe that these may be the man-eating stones described in the Abenaki legends. These were where I started my search. I systematically examined each one in ascending order of altitude, trying to find signs of a struggle, pieces of Caroline's clothing, anything. While carefully looking over the first one, I heard a sound that almost made me jump out of my three layers of jackets. And then an acorn landed on my head. I looked up to see a squirrel, eyes wide, furry hands open around the space where its acorn had just been. I rubbed my head and moved on. It was late afternoon as I traveled between two of the final cairns, empty-handed so far. But then I saw it in the distance as I moved between the trees, a splash of red on the ground, standing out amidst the browns and grays of fading Vermont summer. I ran straight for it. As I got closer, I could see that it was indeed Caroline's jacket, and in it, Caroline. She was slumped against the base of a tree, head lolling to one side, definitely unconscious or worse. Then I saw something else, something that made me stop dead in my tracks. It was much more suited to the color scheme than I was. Suddenly, my choice of jacket seemed an unnecessary risk. 
From a distance, I thought it was a shadow, but once I got close enough to make out Caroline, I could tell that there wasn't anything to be casting it. I'd heard descriptions of something like this in the area, but I'd believed it was just jackasses trying to capitalize on the mystery. It looked like someone's shadow, only it was about a foot taller than an average person, and it was doubled over by the cairn. It caressed the rocks, slowly, almost lovingly, long black fingers sliding over stone without making a sound. I couldn't move. I was completely exposed, but moving towards the nearest tree would likely make enough noise to reveal my presence. At least that's the logic I would use to explain my behavior in hindsight. Realistically, I was just scared. A deer in the headlights. The shadow turned towards Caroline. It took a step. Legs bending at a 90 degree angle. With another step, it was on top of her. It reached down and caressed her face, the same way it had done to the cairn. Bile rose in my throat, and I could feel warmth spreading down the leg of my pants. The shadow froze, hands still on Caroline. Then it slowly turned its head, not moving the rest of its body. I couldn't tell if it had a face, not from this distance, but it looked like a solid black mass, but it was looking right at me. That much I could tell. It cocked its head to one side, like a curious dog wondering where its treat had gone. Dropping Caroline, it rose to its full height. Then it took a step towards me, and I ran. The last thing I remember is the sound of heavy footfalls suddenly stopping and receding as Caroline screamed far behind me. I woke up in bed, on top of my covers. For a moment, I thought it had all been a dream. But then... I looked at myself and saw that I was still wearing all three jackets and my urine-soaked jeans. As I stood to change out of my clothes, I saw that there was a piece of paper on my desk. On the paper was a drawing, drawn with what looked like charcoal. In the drawing, a pile of stones seemed to glow as a woman, submerged up to her waist in the rocks, struggled to claw her way out, screaming and crying. She was being pulled in, and I could tell, even without the red jacket, that the woman was Caroline. Ooh. <laughs> that Bennington <laughs> Triangle. Pretty spooky on that one. Absolutely. Oh, man. I don't, even, I don't even know where to start with this. First of all, let's start with the parallels to the Bermuda Triangle. Right. And okay. other places where it, it feels that maybe it's ley lines, maybe it's that... Uh, things just are a little funky in that area, mm -hmm. but uh, stories of disappearances. So there are places that stuff goes in, doesn't come out. Happens mm -hmm. all the time. Or some email functions mm -hmm. always in that same spot. Something mysterious happens yeah. in these areas consistently. And, well, very much like sunny Bermuda, Vermont seems not the kind of place that seems at first all spooky and, and foreboding. <laughs> The, a great place for a, a, some kind of anomaly that would make people go missing. But, uh, yeah, it's certainly uh, after this story, if I ever find myself uh, wandering around through the Vermont woods, I'll be, I'll be watching out for little stone cairns for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. I think the most interesting thing here is that she had foreknowledge kind of of what was going to happen. Like she heard about the Bennington triangle mm -hmm. and was warned about it. And all these other people had disappeared there and yeah, kind of just brushed it off a little. And then her friend disappears and she joins the party 
and everything's real. Mm hmm. I do find I typically enjoy writing for, you know, in medieval or fantasy worlds, um, mostly because it's it's very difficult to make an interesting story from a character who can easily research and may already know some of the things they're going up against. Yeah, cell phones and Google make it a little, yeah, it makes a little it bit more difficult. A little, little tricky. But this was a great use of that, telling just a small chapter of a much, much longer story. There's, right. a, there's a story that built up to it. That's what pushed this person into mm-hmm. making the next chapter. Because this story has potentially happened multiple times. Mm-hmm. This is just another chronicle, just another parts of the tale yeah so what do you think is up with the little stones do you think they're the creature but i think they're part of this system or you know or or does this monster turn its victims into the stones i feel like that's what it was hinting add another trophy to the pile like predator what if these cairns are his people yeah right what if they are created and that's from that right mm -hmm. i mean there's a lot of different elements that indicate numerous things it could be but karen's um she talks about the ones in britain yeah uh, britain and ireland and i know that karen's there are very very linked to like the fey folk yeah and the supernatural thing uh and, and burials yeah throughout the world so they they all have this mystical element to them of the unknown of magic of don't go near there because yeah, exactly yeah. something something that you something that should be left alone yeah yeah right mm-hmm. and i think that element is here but i think the thing i enjoyed the most about the karens was the fact that no one knew where they came from yeah like the native people the the abenaki they they didn't know. They did not claim ownership of these whatsoever. And I think that's really interesting that they've been there since time immemorial. Yeah. Right. So there's this extra layer of mysterious with them mm-hmm. because how did they appear? Yeah. And then uh, as modern society moves in and, and cities and towns go around, even then it seems like they pick up a little bit of that otherworldly quality. Between the fog and and uh, the image of that obelisk is really a strong one. That's very striking. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I don't know what would drive someone to want to build an obelisk <laughs> <laughs> around this mysterious area, but it does make it far spookier. Yeah, right? we, we've had an obelisk here in Salt Lake for a number of years. Yeah. And... For those who don't know what an obelisk is, I don't know if you do or not, but basically it's ve- it's a tall pillar yeah. with uh, like a pyramid top kind of. Yep. It tapers into a, a point, basically. Y- yeah. I mean, think of the shape of the Washington Monument. Ex- have- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And there have been obelisks all over the world mm-hmm. um, in many, many times. They're, they're a great example of... A universal monument. Yeah, they're really. a monument that uh, really stands out. It's pretty easy to build. It's never been my favorite style of monument, only because I come from a family. Uh, my dad is a bronze sculptor, and we do more shape-based. Uh, <laughs> so you're very familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, obelisks are pretty cool, I guess. Uh, they're kind of spooky in their own way. <laughs> so Carolyn. Carolyn goes missing. Yeah. I 
think um, with this tale, her friends suddenly disappearing, obviously, is is the key here of, of what kind of propels the story forward, mm-hmm. right? This person that she knows somewhat well is concerned about... So, so the, the friend that went missing and... And I do love that this is written from the perspective of a kind of an educated and intuitive person. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a certain degree of logic to this character. I, I mean, aside from the lack of logic to go go on your own yeah. wearing a red jacket. But, but, I, but that's understandable, too. That's an emotional response to her own curiosity. Yeah. Right. And it also plays into her own skepticism and an expectation. Right. Like like not expecting that something is really going to happen to you. Yeah. And also to her logic, the red jacket, well that should make her easy to find if if there's if there's trouble. But I think she also knew she was tempting fate. Right. I think that's exactly yeah. <laughs> why she had it, right? This element of of this girl missing and people searching for her and not finding her. And this ominous, ominous place that she potentially was lost, mm-hmm. uh, I think is is really, really central to the story, obviously, right? And is kind of the motivation for our character to end up meeting this creature. Yeah, yeah. Right? Going back to the obelisk for a second, actually, let's talk about how it was Lovecraftian. Ooh, yeah, that's one of my favorite kinds of of spooky horror uh, to flavor to add to something. Uh-huh. I I really love uh, her use of <laughs> the a monument to the Eldritch Overlord. Yeah, because if anything, Lovecraft is very Eldritch. Yeah, it's very deep and chthonic and yeah, this and it, this this core terror but it all, that, this, that lives in all of us. But it also has a an element of scale to it that is yes. so unknowable by the mortal mind. Absolutely. Um, it is, you are such a small and insignificant piece of a much larger story. And Cthulhu will destroy you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also kind of liked the note of, uh, but, th- you know, this person is a is familiar with Lovecraft, but hasn't read any Lovecraft. Right, and I think that that's most of us. Yeah, I'll own I have not successfully read any Lovecraft. It's I have <laughs> attempted and then decided uh, I'll read the Wikipedia article. <laughs> <laughs> Lovecraft is dense. It is. To read. Yeah, it's it's not, it wasn't an easy read. Um, it's I, difficult and hard to wade through, but very iconically Lovecraft. Like, yeah. if you can get into it and kind of start to understand his use of language and his imagery. Mm-hmm. It's epic, right? Yeah. But it's really hard to get to that point. <laughs> but it, but his ideas and his stories are so like universally known, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah. They, they, they have, they, just... per, they permeate our culture now today. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, like who, who doesn't know who Cthulhu is? Yeah. Right. He's out there in all, all kinds of video games. He's there in shapes and he's even funny he's little dolls. Looming over us right now. Yeah. Oh, I love Cthulhu. Um, so that's, that's a fun element, I think. Yeah. Of that. 
And I like that uh, it leaves the door open for this is a creature not meant to be understood. This is a creature that it, it, you, you shouldn't go looking for it. And if you find it, good luck. Yeah, clearly. So let's talk for a second about the creature itself. This, yeah. this shadow creature. This shadowy creature. It's it's not super large. Um, it seems to move on its own. It's it, it's not a. It's it, an entity in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be a solitary creature. But a shadow. Yeah. Which is an interesting element, I think. But I guess it would have to be if things are being absorbed into something that's so solid like rocks Mm -hmm. yeah right the fact that it's ethereal lends itself to being able to move into something concrete and solid like like rock Mm -hmm. Um, it makes sense that it doesn't have physical substance yeah unless it wants to that kind of makes it an in-between another world and our world Mm -hmm. right yeah and but it can also pick up poor Caroline and yeah. yeah. Yes. And that, that is another very interesting aspect that how can a shadow move something solid? Yeah. How can it move mass? Right. Which makes you think that it's a whole other thing. Maybe it's another dimension. There are a number of uh, uh, monsters in Dungeons and Dragons that are, limited in how much they can be interacted with uh by things on the material plane Mm -hmm. and there's even you know shadow monsters very much like this because magic should have rules yeah right yeah and well your your regular sword not gonna do a whole lot against them (laughs) gonna slice right through (laughs) and not do any damage um so so i think the shadow part of it's interesting that kind of leads us to the note yeah, the, the final note little note. Somehow she appeared in her bed at home. Yeah. Which A, that's fucking creepy. Mm-hmm. And B, a little even more worrisome because I don't know where she lived. How did it draw this thing? Yeah, that's something that it it almost Why didn't doesn't, it harm her? Yeah, it almost doesn't fit with the rest of the story, but it also lets you know. There is so much more to this story than what, right. what yeah, may, this like, character knows. Yeah. Maybe there are chosen people. Yeah. Right. So maybe she wasn't one of those. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it could be various other things. And we don't know. And that's fine. It's it's great because it, it lets your imagination run yeah. with it. Like a good story should. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that I like the drawing aspects because it kind of gives us conclusion yeah. Of what happened because mm-hmm. we know Caroline was alive when she ran away because we heard her scream mm-hmm. or at least I assume she was maybe not who who can say yeah um but just that whole other element of this conclusion of her uh, her being absorbed into these rocks yeah you know how how many souls are trapped there over the millennia that they must have and been present and to what end uh is it are is they, it feeding something is it powering something yeah. is it there's all kinds of possibilities to it and i love that it's easy to let your just imagination run wild with it yeah i really love that yeah it's, it's a fantastic story yeah really a lot of fun thank you so much for sending it in yeah thank you laura so we have another promo for you 
another fantastic podcast. This one is Project Archivist. They kind of do subjects that are weird and strange. Cool. Uh, and, and they have a lot of guests on their show mm-hmm. um, that talk about a variety of things. And I really like that aspect. I like that they have a lot of different conversations with people that know what they're talking about. Yeah. Right. Um, so we're going to play that promo for you and we highly suggest giving them a listen. Project Archivist is a podcast that talks about the science of tomorrow, the lost history of our past, spirituality, and the paranormal. Join us as your hosts Rojan and Lobo take a different look at the world around us through discussion and guest interviews. Find us on iTunes or visit us in the archives at www.projectarchivist.com. So that was the, our promo for Project Archivist. Yeah, sounds pretty cool. We're just going to jump right into our next story. Yeah. It is called The Face Game Ooh, the- by Tristan Lintz. And his uh, Reddit handle is Discord underscore and underscore dined. So Discord and dined. Okay, cool. And Logan's going to tell us that story. The Face Game. David and I have had Smokey for a while. When we picked her up from the shelter, she was a tiny, wriggling little husky puppy. Five years later, she's outgrown her puppiness, but the cuteness remains. I must admit, I post way more pictures of her than I do of myself to my Instagram. One day, Smokey started having stomach troubles. We woke up on Saturday morning to barf covering the kitchen floor where she usually slept. David called the vet, and we scheduled an appointment for Thursday. We went through the house, trying to find what had caused Smokey's illness, but we never did. David thought she'd eaten a rotten mouse or something, and it upset her stomach. I guess that made as much sense as anything else we tried to come up with. In any case, on Tuesday, we sat in the waiting room of our local vet, smoking laying down on the floor in front of us with her head in her paws. She hadn't thrown up in a day or two, but we wanted to be certain she was okay. David had dozed off on my shoulder. I smiled and grasped his hand in mine, staring at our intertwined fingers. I think that's why I hadn't noticed the little girl until she was standing right in front of me. Hey mister, what's your dog's name? I turned my head to see her right beside Smokey with an eager grin on her face. She was about eight, with curly red hair, a cute little button nose, and the greenest eyes I'd ever seen. Clothed in jeans and a pink t-shirt, her red converse shifted on the floor beside our sleeping dog. Smokey, I said, leaning forward with a smile. But don't get too close. She's been having an upset tummy recently. The girl frowned and looked down. I hope she gets better soon. She's really cute. Bending down, the girl began stroking her on the head. She opened her eyes and gazed at her new visitor for a moment before woofing quietly and dozing back off. I looked past the girl to the sparse waiting room. We were one of the last appointments of the day, and there were only two other occupants. A teenage boy slumped on a bench on his phone, a birdcage with a parrot in it resting beside, and the other occupant, an old woman, had dozed off on the couch. A cat carrier from which meowing was emitting sat on the floor in front of her. I frowned. That was odd. Where was the girl's parents? 
Unless the old woman was her grandma and the teen her older brother, she was here all alone. When I looked back down, I saw the girl had crouched her knees and was gazing intently at Smokey. David jostled but wake beside me. Are we up next? he asked in a tired voice. I answered negatively as he smiled and looked down. Well, uh, who's this? he asked. Uh, what's your name? Instead of answering his question, the girl was now standing up, looking smoky over like she was appraising something for an auction. Are you the Paulsons? The reception suddenly looked up from her desk. I looked up and nodded. Dr. Lewis will see you in a few minutes. Sorry about the wait. I ignored her and stared instead at the girl, who was still staring at Smokey in that odd way. Where are your parents? I asked. David gave me a look. Oh, come on, Ben. Let her look at Smokey. But the way she was doing it made me nervous. I know it sounds strange, but it was just creeping me out. Where are your parents? I asked again, a little harder than I intended to. The girl didn't take her eyes away from our dog. What can Smokey do? Can she shake? David nodded, although hesitantly. Go ahead. Try it. The girl looked down and said, Smokey, shake. Smokey seemed too tired or too uninterested to follow the girl's instructions and did nothing. Can she sit and stay? The girl asked, almost bending downward with the intensity of her staring. David seemed to sense that something was wrong as well, because he asked, Where are your parents? In the time since looking around, the old woman had gone and the teen was just leaving. Can she play the face game? That made us pause. The receptionist looked up, confusion crossing her face. The what? David asked, sitting up straighter and pulling slightly on the leash. It's really easy, the girl said. Let me show you. Before anyone could stop her, she bent down and grabbed Smokey's head in her hands. She began passing it between her fingers, muttering something in a low whisper. Smokey whined and started to try to pull away, but her grip was like a vice. Her gaze intensified and her fingernails suddenly dug into the sides of Smokey's head. At this point, David and I were on our feet, grabbing at her collar and pulling her away from the girl. A few seconds later, she released her, her fingers dripping with blood. Smokey whined on the floor, red marks blossoming on her red and black fur. She laughed and ran out the door, pausing only once to turn back. She can. After that spectacle, Dr. Lewis looked Smokey over carefully. He prescribed her some pills and even appraised the intensity of the punctures the girl's fingernails had made on her face. It's nothing life-threatening. Don't worry about it. But I would keep her close for the next few days. She looks pretty rattled. He stroked her head while she lay on the operating table, shivering. On our way out, we asked the receptionist when the little girl had come in, as all visitors needed to sign a sheet. I've never seen her before, and she didn't sign her name. Parents have to sign for their children, too, so she wasn't the child of anyone that came in today. I hope Smokey feels better, poor thing. That night, David and I ate an uneasy dinner. We sat in the living room, aimlessly scrolling through Netflix. I just don't get it, he said. Why would she do something like that? Do you think her parents are drug addicts or something? <laughs> There's got to be some sort of explanation. I shrugged. Who knows? Kids are all kinds of screwed up these days. She was a psychotic brat for doing it, and there's nothing we can do now. Smokey laid on the couch next to us, her head in David's lap. All that matters is she's okay. I really hope these pills work. We went to bed soon after, shutting off the lights and climbing between the sheets. 
Just to be safe, we put Smokey in our room. She whined and pawed at the door, her facial injuries already forgotten. I know, I know, you usually sleep in the kitchen, but just humor us tonight, okay? She snuffled as if in understanding and planted herself at the foot of our bed, curling up. Soon after, the three of us fell asleep. A few hours later, I woke suddenly. I sat up and rubbed the sleep out of my eyes. David still dozed beside me, snoring loudly. I blinked, and as I adjusted to the darkness, I noticed something. The door to the bedroom was open. Smokey was missing from the foot of the bed. Any other night, I probably would have just shrugged it off and gone back to sleep. Smokey was smart. I'm sure she could have found a way to get out of the room somehow. But after all that had happened that day, I take the slightest precaution. I slipped out of bed and walked out into the hallway, peering down the dark stairwell. Smokey? I called in a quiet voice. I didn't expect an answer and likewise didn't receive one. Descending the stairs, I headed into the kitchen. It made the most sense that she would be there. It was where she usually slept. I didn't turn on any of the lights so as not to startle her. The floor was barren, the green light from the digital clock on the oven casting a strange glow. I turned and crossed the hall, entering the living room. The drapes had been drawn, blocking any potential light that may have come from the street lamp outside. As I did so, I became aware of a faint, growling noise. I frowned. That was odd. Smokey was usually so calm and docile. Squinting, I saw a dark shape barely peeking out from behind the couch. Smokey? I whispered again, stepping forward. The growling ceased, and a faint panting could be heard. I sighed in relief. She must have been having a nightmare. Sure enough, her face peeked out from the corner of the couch. Stepping forward, I reached a hand out and ran it down, ruffling her fur. My hand froze when I looked closer. Her face looked normal, to be sure. It had all the necessary elements. Snout, black and white fur, lolling pink tongue. But it all felt wrong. The fur, it wasn't soft and fluffy like it should be. It felt wiry and oily, almost stiff under my touch. The teeth, I could barely see them poking out from under the black lips. But they didn't look pointed. They looked square. And the eyes. Smokey was a husky, after all. Her eyes were a deep, brilliant shade of ice blue. Those ones were green. I made the connection then, a scream forming in my throat. I stepped back, just a second too late. A loud howl erupted from the thing behind the couch, and the square human teeth sunk deep into my hand. I cried out in pain as it began shaking its head around, shredding the skin. With a mighty tug, I wrenched it from its jaws and fell backwards, crashing into the coffee table. I picked myself up again and ran for the stairs, casting a fleeting glance behind me. The thing, jerking on all fours after me, had Smokey's face stuck to its twisted body. Limbs cracked at odd angles. There was no way that it should have been able to move with how horribly twisted it was. But it did anyway streaking after me like a spider, tatters of pink and blue cloth stuck in bits to its limbs. It may have been quick, but I was quicker. I thanked my years of college track as I darted down the hallway and into the bedroom. The thing gave a strangled cry and launched, fingernails bared toward the door. I shut it with a loud bang and barely had time to flick the lock before it rammed, jolting on its hinges. Giving a cry of frustration, it scratched feverishly at the other side. The lock held the handle in place, but it still rattled heavily in its socket. David shot up in bed and turned to look at me. What the fuck is going on? 
Call the police, I yelled, running back toward the door and holding it shut. The banging got louder, and I heard wood splintering. David hurriedly dialed 911 and yelled what little he knew about our situation into the receiver. As he did, the attack on the door slowly began to quiet down. The scratching gradually faded away, and the frequent bangs came longer in between. By the time we heard sirens outside, all the noises had been quiet for over five minutes. The police searched the house and found the back door had been broken open. The lock lay in a heap of splintered wood and metal shavings in the laundry room. The shattered coffee table was found, as well as the scratch marks on the door. Still rattled, I gave my story to the police frantically, frequently asking where Smokey was. My demeanor certainly didn't help my case, and they looked skeptical as they finished interviewing me. The lead cop shook his head. Sir, I'm sure your encounter with that girl earlier today was traumatizing. But what has that got to do with the damage done to your house? This is clearly some starving animal desperate enough to break down a door and look for food. You scared it when you came downstairs and it, it attacked you. David had joined us outside, looking sadly at me. Babe, I know it must have been scary, but there's no way it could have happened exactly how you described it. The cop nodded and indicated toward the patrol car. I told them Smokey is missing. They'll drive around a little looking for her when you get to the station. I'll stay here and hold down the fort. Maybe she'll even come home before you come back. I started to protest, but the cop silently ushered me toward the car. Don't worry. There's going to be a patrol officer waiting across the street for the rest of the night in case it decides to come back. It did little to console me as we drove off down the street. At the station, I gave the same report I had given the first time. It was dutifully recorded and placed in a file, but it was clear that nobody believed me. Two hours and lots of paperwork later, I stepped out into the dim morning light. Dawn was an hour or so away. The first few stars were slowly winking out. I decided to walk home to clear my head. Right before I was asked to leave the property, a squad car pulled in. An officer stepped out, waving his hands. Mr. Paulson, uh, wait a minute. As I turned, he ran around to the other side and opened the passenger door. Smokey bounded out and started running towards me, tongue lolling. I cringed and took a few steps back, but looked closer. Those ice blue eyes and a joyful expression were all that greeted me. The officer walked over. We found her in a field about a half mile away. I think the dog that got into your house uh, scared her off. I petted her and ran my hands down her face. She was happy, but I could see some evidence of fear. Her tail was tucked between her legs rather than wagging, and her face did look a bit shrouded with worry or guilt. You can take her home now. We'll be filing the report soon. Have a nice night, the officer said as he stepped through the doors. Smokey and I walked home slowly. We were both wary to return to the house, but in the end we realized it had probably all just been hallucinations or something brought on by my excitement and worry over the previous day's events. By the time we reached our street, both of us were in bright spirits. The sun was just beginning to rise when I reached our front door. The patrol car was gone. I was a little pissed the officer had left early, but seeing my story from a much straighter frame of mind made me reconsider. I guess I had been a little hysterical. He didn't really need to stay out all night. David, we're home, I called as we stepped inside. Guess who I've got? Silence. David? I called again, stepping closer into the house. I had seen his car in the driveway as we approached. I slowly climbed the stairs, Smokey trailing distantly behind me. She was growling slightly, and her hackles were raised. I felt the rationale I had placed over the events earlier crumbling as paranoia took over. Why was it so quiet in here? Where was David? 
I walked uneasy down the hallway and placed a hand on the bedroom doorknob. Taking a deep breath, I pushed it open. It splashed in the pool of blood as it swung. David was sprawled on the bed, face up, although that expression is a little false. Whatever pulpy mess where his face used to be, little resembled what used to be there. I sank to my knees, not caring that I landed in the pool. A scream slowly welled up in my throat, which burst forth when I read the two words messily painted in blood on the wall above the bed. He can't. Well, that was. What did you think of that one, Linz? <laughs> I think that it was horrifying. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely. Uh, that, that's a little bit more the gonna get you visceral kind of scary right. story. More, like, more like horror movie. Yeah. Esque. Mm-hmm. Right. Because um, it's visual. Like yeah. Like yeah. Said, it's very visually engaging very visually vivid yeah and what a what a monster they've got (laughs) i don't even i don't even know how to go into this because this monster's just so creepy yeah it's got that element of human and animal it kind of you know it kind of reminds me of have you seen annihilation yeah so (laughs) spoilers skip ahead if you haven't seen it and you want to um, but in that movie, there is a creature that it's a bear, a, a mutated bear that eats somebody mm-hmm. and finds the other characters later on and is then talking and screaming in that person's voice. Yeah. The creepiest fucking thing I've ever seen. I still have nightmares about that bear. It's terrifying. And the reason why it's so scary is that you have this animal that's also human. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And for this to have a a monster to have such a human element that it can wear the shape of a little girl and talk to you and laugh and seem so sweet. uh, That is very, very scary. Mm -hmm. I wonder more about the the mechanics of this quote-unquote face game, mm-hmm. right? Like, how does this work? Was this girl that they met someone who could play the face game? So the creature took her over and then shifted to Smokey, the dog, and then tried to shift to David. Yeah, and I think... And where did it go? I think because Smokey ended up being in a different place, um... I think a little bit that it is a it's a replacement monster. It gets kind of a scan and a feel from the from the, the making contact and touching the face, mm-hmm. and then it can make a passable duplicate. Maybe like some sort of shapeshifter creature. Yeah, doppelganger even maybe I don't know mm-hmm. some some element of that. Yeah, power. I now guess. now then that begs the question: How does one succeed or fail at the face game because obviously it has something to do with the face um yeah with with the injuries or yeah the injuries to the dog at the beginning and then obviously the injuries to david at the end Mm -hmm. and how one is clearly a little bit more horrific than the other um although i do have to say i almost felt more bad for Smokey than i for David, which is probably too much time watching. It's the dog. <laughs> like scary <yeah>. TV shows. <laughs> and it's a pupper. You don't want a pupper to get hurt. Exactly. Yeah. You you don't want to hurt She's the dog. She's a good girl. Yeah, exactly. 
so that's so hard. I, it's it's really hard when stories have elements that the animals are hurt, and it's so interesting thinking that you can you can watch humans get hurt all the time over and over again in media. Mm-hmm. And once an animal, yeah, once an animal is injured, it's not okay. It's not cool, man. It's not okay. Yeah, and, and I think that really speaks to our relationship with animals. Yeah, it does. Uh, that humans are all we are competitive and often that competition can turn to animosity but with animals uh, especially dogs our relationship with them is very balanced companionship yes exactly this story reminds me of kind of a joke that i have with another one of our friends um (laughs) that uh, i remember one night i had had fair amount to drink and and uh this dog uh, boomer comes up to me and i look him right in the eyes and i say okay boomer Offers on the table. If you want to trade heads, we'll make it happen. <laughs> Boomer has a great head. Boomer's for the got a very good head. Yes, he is one of my favorite pups. He's a very good boy. He's basically he's a pit. Mm-hmm. A pit. I think pit. pit something and next. some lab in there. Or something, something like that. Yeah. But he's he looks like a pit, and he is the chillest animal mm-hmm. I've met to ever exist he puts himself to bed at like nine he's, he's basically a grumpy old man yeah but in the best possible way he's but, the sweetest <laughs> sweetest dog and i love him and i completely understand where you're coming from yeah yeah and he's <laughs> and he's got that great big pit bull head on him he does um so I, I made that comment just you know just imagining how i think his head would look good on my body and i think and my head would look versa. good on his <laughs> and um anyway our friend josh uh, actually photoshopped these as a switch and he oh, showed did. it to me <laughs> I did see that. so to see my head on boomer's body is pretty funny that's fantastic and that's kind of what it reminded me of in this story this kind of mostly animal but still has this a mash of human and animal yeah. aspect also reminds me of uh what we do in the shadows yes <laughs> how you can change shape but never get the faces right <laughs> oh my god if you haven't seen that movie you must immediately go watch it especially with with the halloween season waning down yeah. the nice thing with this movie is it's not a scary movie. no no it's, it's a mockumentary about vampires and werewolves mm-hmm. um so it's a good light-hearted fun to kind of round out the halloween season it, I think. it was a fun one yeah it's, it's a new zealand film taika watiti yes it's thor ragnarok yeah so if you've seen if you've seen thor ragnarok he does he directed and was the rock creature in it. I can't remember mm-hmm. his name. So funny. Best comedic relief in that show period. Yeah. And that, the entire movie is hilarious. <laughs> he did. So he did what we do in the shadows. He did hunt for the wilder people, both great, hilarious films. Um, but what we do in the shadows is just classic. And so we always have, we have the aspect of vampires that can, can shapeshift into different animals and mm-hmm. stuff. Right. Yeah. We've, we've always had that as part of their lore. <laughs> so yeah, like Logan said, one of the aspects is that he, he kind of, some of his powers waned a little bit. And mm-hmm. so now he can transform into animals, but then they always end up with a human face. On yeah. <laughs> it's so creepy, but also hilarious at the same time. It's it's such a good film. And and it's images like that that made mm-hmm. me think, you know, this is this is a creature that has potential to be funny or goofy or just a guy out of place. 
However, this story definitely puts it in a in a dark and yes. grim kind of kind of well, especially way. with looking so very similar to the dog. Yeah. But feeling wrong. And then you look back a little further and the eyes are wrong and the teeth are human. Well, and yeah. And that's just not okay. It's it's so jarringly wrong. And that's that, that it's terrifying. And 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 really that's the big element that gets carried over in both forms we see this creature in. It's right. th- it's those emerald green eyes. Mm-hmm. Um the little girl had the greenest eyes he'd ever seen. The dog has those same green eyes, and yeah. that's what when they the should trigger be a beautiful is. ice blue. Yeah, um, I wonder if the, those eyes are just part of the 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 limitation on this creature. It can mm-hmm. change shape, but those eyes are always going to be there. Or it could be a thing where it shifts from its last form had green eyes, so now its next form has green eyes. Yeah, and the next time it will have another aspect of the thing before mm-hmm. or. It always does, you know. Yeah, an interesting. It does interesting seem thing to think about. It, it does seem wildly unpredictable and predatory. It's uh, yes, yes, yeah, part of what makes it scary. I love that he put these these images in of the pink and blue cloth tattered and stuck to this creature, so you know, you know that it was this little girl. Yeah, because that's what you saw mm-hmm. her in earlier, right? And I think that was a really smart detail to add. So that it has that immediate connection of, okay, mm-hmm. I know where this creature came from. Yeah. I know what the face game is. I know that that happened. And this um, is the result of that game. Exactly. Uh, and then and then leaving being the, the PlayStation for a while and Smokey being found and showing up. And then they go home. Boy, I, I know I've, I've come home to a home intruder one time. Oh, and wow. It is... When you come into your home and something is amiss, you feel it the second you walk in. Mm-hmm. And when it's something like, yeah, like that, it's, it, boy, that's scary. When it's a monster, especially when it's something that could hurt someone you care about, that's very, very yeah. scary. And and obviously that happened yeah. here. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's just the imagery of pool of, like, door swung open into a pool of blood, right? Oh, yeah. And words scrawled on the wall yeah he can't and his face clearly clearly the victim of this he can't aspect but that but that that implies a logic and a memory on this creature right it's very very much sentient it knows what it's doing intelligent yeah and that's far more terrifying than just brute force Mm -hmm. creature right and it has both aspects. It clearly is strong and it's clearly aggressive and it's smart. Yeah. Which are dangerous combo <laughs> there <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And, and thanks again to all of our, our contributors. That was really a fun episode. I really thought that was a, a fun collection of stories and mm-hmm. a great way to kind of round out this early well it's it's about to be winter time but uh yes yeah it, we, can, we can just eke out a little bit more of the spookiness of the halloween season here for sure for sure and if you guys have and we'll end up doing this we want to cycle through um doing a creature folktales creature folktales and then doing a modern folklore episode each each cycle of what we do kind of just because i think that those are a fun break from what we do, mm-hmm. but at the same time, 
as we've talked about earlier, they are also folklore in and of themselves. They are what the core and the seeds of folklore, what it begins as, right? Um, And it's, it's so interesting to see that grow. Uh, And we have, I mean, if we, if we talk about stuff like, like Slender Man, right? Yeah. It started as a a creepypasta, I think. Um, or it was an image, an image contest or something like that, but it started on the internet and it became viral lore was created around it and it's built to this creature that we all know about Yeah, in modern times. It's the perfect example of how folklore can snowball, right? Yep. And it, you, and it uses whatever is, these. yeah. Uh, really communication is, is kind of the fuel that feeds the fire of, of these mm-hmm. things. Absolutely. And, and I think an even more interesting thing with this is the viral aspect of it, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, it moved so quickly through the internet and nowadays everything does mm-hmm. and things go viral so quickly and you can never really predict what will or what won't go viral, but it, <laughs> stories can reach so many more people so much more quickly. Yeah. And I think that's a a good thing, and I think that's a bad thing in some aspects, but... Uh, I think a lot of things are going to have to change to adjust for it. For sure. Mm-hmm. But that's how our folklore is going to progress over time. Yeah. It's going to be viral stuff like this, because that's how we communicate with each other. And the fact that we have, you know, seven plus billion people on the world mm-hmm. to contribute to that is going to be really interesting to see. Yeah. You know, I kind I wish I could move ahead a thousand years in the future and see what's come from our time. Well, I'm I'm sure if we dig deep enough we can find some way to unlock immortality and explore that, but uh Yeah, we're we're getting there. It always comes with some kind of drawback. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Also, if you guys are writers for No Sleeps or Creepypastas or Let's Not Meets, Give us a shout out. We're accepting stories for narration like mm-hmm. we've done today. And the email for that is modern at folkloreintherocks.com. So you can send those our way and and we'll look through them and, and potentially narrate them on the show. Yes, please. And Logan's really great at narrating, as um, you guys have heard. So... <laughs> <laughs> it'd be oh, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah, and and really one of the one of the nice things about only doing this every once in a while is if for I I know for me it's kind of inspired me to take take a shot at maybe writing one of these. <laughs> and if yeah. there's anybody out there that's listening that thinks they like to write and they haven't done it in a while and they've never done something like this, give it a shot. Yeah, give it a try. Yeah. You'd be really surprised what you can come up with if you just sit down and just start working on For something. For sure. And the best the best writing advice I've ever received is just write something. Mm-hmm. Put it down on paper. Your first draft is going to be shit. It always will. Yep. But once your thoughts and your ideas are down, you can fix and you can build and you can tweak and then it becomes after you edit it becomes the story that you always wanted to tell yeah so just do it as we always go here's our little reminder at the end of our episodes you can find us on social media at instagram and facebook at folklore and the rocks 
You can find us at Twitter at Folklore Rocks. We have pictures, notes, sources, etc. in our show notes at FolkloreOnTheRocks.com. Uh, I generally put a good chunk of work into our show notes so that they're at least consistent and cohesive. So you'll have links to these stories. I'm glad you um, do. Some, some folks are show notes kind of people. Not everyone is. We've, we <laughs> cater to both kinds. Totally understandable. So if you want to see pictures that we post or you want to see where I got sources or where Logan got sources or links to these stories, that's the place to go. Um, we have a Patreon that has some fantastic tears. Uh, Logan's going to be doing some really fun stuff. I've got some cool ideas. He for does. What's going in so there. that's going to be available to our Patreon donors. And uh, we also do have a PayPal button on our website. So if you don't want to be a monthly contributor, that's totally fine. Um, but you, w- but you still want to give and help support us a little bit. You can do that through the PayPal button on our site, mm-hmm. folklorentherocks.com. Um, Hopefully, around when this episode comes out, maybe a little after, I'll have a merch shop up. Oh, yeah. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see how busy life gets. Um, but we're going to have some cool stuff like mugs and shirts and yeah. things. If you have other ideas of what you'd like, you know, let, let us, us know. know. You, sure. you want a mouse pad? Let's make it happen, Kathy. Because let's be honest, we have a pretty kick-ass logo. We sure do. It's going to look super great on a mug or a shirt. Or Camaro. <laughs> or Camaro. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, also, if you've got personal stories about creatures, monsters, cryptids, uh, even if you didn't know what you saw was, you can email them to stories at folkloreontherocks.com. We, we want to do more to do a listener's episode, kind of like we did with our spooktacular special, mm-hmm. um, but more creature-oriented. Yeah. I think it'll be great. And um, we also ask that if you have a chance to rate us and leave us a review on iTunes, it really, really helps uh, people understand that there are others listening to our show. Yes, please. <laughs> um, and kind of gives them a reference. Like, honestly, who doesn't look at reviews when they buy stuff nowadays or when they are about to go listen to something or like we tend to kind of trust the mess, the masses when it comes to knowing the quality of something. So if you can vouch for our quality, if you like us, um, please do. Yes. Uh, please continue to tell your friends. Uh, so far, we've seen some really great uh, momentum in increased listenership. And we're really, really Absolutely. pleased with it. Uh, thank you so much for all of our listeners and and anyone who who tells their friends about us. Yeah, this, for this sure. has been really fun to do and it only gets more fun if we get more people involved. Absolutely. And we kinda wanna give back in that way. If we if we hit a hundred reviews, we wanna do a listener selected creature and a bonus episode. So it would be separate from what we normally do, but you would get something extra. Um so that's maybe a little incentive to Yeah. Let people know if you like us or not. Um or at I, least I don't mean not. If you like us, yeah. If you like <laughs> leave us. a review if you like us. And either way, just stay tuned. We've got some cool stuff coming. We really do. Yeah. We really, really do. Um, so that's all we've got for you. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>